Hey, thanks for listening to Cornerstone Church. You can find us on the web at akcornerstone.org. And we want you to know it's our prayer that the Holy Spirit will use this message to either save you through the good news about Jesus Christ, grow you into the likeness of Jesus, or send you to proclaim Jesus in the Spirit's power. Please open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12 as we begin. There is a verse that the Spirit just impressed, I believe, impressed upon my, my heart this week in light of all that was going on that I just want to begin with as an introduction to the subject and as a launch point. We're going to look at a lot of scriptures today. I encourage you to follow along in your Bibles. You're going to have to turn fairly quickly. If you need a Bible, we have them behind each section of chairs. We'll be putting the page number to the church Bibles up on the screen so that you can find them quickly. Here's the verse from Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verses 2 and 3. The writer of Hebrews says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Just the truth that I want to spotlight in that verse is this. (coughs) It was the joy set before Jesus that strengthened him to endure the cross that was set before him. It says in another place of Scripture that it is the joy of the Lord that is our strength. So here's what we need to walk through life. Here's what we need in the difficult times of life, in the valleys of life. What we need is the joy that is set before us. What is that? The joy that is set before us is the truth about what God is going to do for us on the other side of life's difficulties. When we enter into glory, if we understand the realities of what is coming, the joy that God has set before us in the Word of God, it'll do what the joy set before Jesus did for him. It will strengthen us so that we endure faithful through the trials and the tests and the valleys of life. So with Jesus as our example, I invite you to the subject this morning of the all-conquering hope of heaven the all-conquering hope of heaven. And I want to look at five different things that are going to be true for sons and daughters of God, a glory that awaits us, guaranteed. First of all, we are going to have glorious bodies. We're going to have glorious bodies. Philippians chapter 2, please turn there, verses 20 to 21. Philippians 2, 20 and 21, Paul here is writing to the believers at the church at Philippi, and he is 
talking to them about the hope of the return of Jesus Christ and what's going to happen as eternity begins in the future. He writes, chapter 3, verse 20, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Our bodies, Paul says, followers of Christ, our bodies are going to experience a transformation and Jesus Christ is the one that's going to accomplish that transformation. Jesus Christ is the God of all power that has all of the resources in the universe at his disposal to engage his creative fiat and transform our lowly bodies into glorious bodies. And he's going to do that. We are not given an exact description in Scripture of what those bodies are going to be like, but we are given enough information to engender wonder. And so that's what I want to do. I want to just take a glimpse through the truth behind the curtain and the veil of heaven to give you a glimpse of what is to come for you. Luke chapter 24. First thing about our glorious bodies that I want to point out is that they're going to be tangible bodies. They're going to be tangible bodies. They're going to have substance. They're not going to be an apparition. We're not going to be a nondescript floating spirit. We are going to have tangible bodies that feel and touch and can be felt. Luke 24, verse 39, Jesus said, after his resurrection, appearing among them as they were hidden behind locked doors, he appeared in his resurrected form, and he said in Luke 24, 39, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself, touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Touch me and see. Tangible body. At one point, he took some food and ate it in their presence in his resurrected form to convince them that he was really there. So our glorious bodies are going to be tangible. Secondly, they're going to be recognizable. They're going to be recognizable bodies. This is part of the emphasis in Luke 24. Jesus is saying, look, guys, it's me. Can't you see that it's me? And how did he drive that home? He said, look at my hands and look at my feet. What's the significance there? What were on his hands and his feet? It was the marks of the crucifixion that he had endured. The scars of the spikes that were driven. But listen, I don't want you to grab from that that the 
pain that we experience in this life is going to follow us into the next. That's not what the scars on the body of Jesus in his resurrected form were. Do you know what they were? They were emblems of glory for him. Would you just process that for a minute? The scars of Jesus were badges of honor for the king of kings. Here's an example. Picture yourself entering heaven, and there is Jesus on that day welcoming you there, throwing the door open and extending his arms to embrace you. And there as he embraces you are the marks in his hands, and you fall at his pierced feet in worship because you see him unveiled as the God of the universe, yet on the body of God is the marks of suffering that he endured for you. Wow! Those are badges of honor and emblems of glory. That's why... He retained them, and he's going to retain them for all of eternity. But the point is, he was recognizable, and you will be as well. Third aspect of our glorious bodies is they're going to be timeless. They're going to be timeless bodies. 1 Corinthians 15.42, Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, He's making a comparison here between the body in this life and the body in the next. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, 42, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. That's this body. What is raised is imperishable. Our bodies are going to go from perishable to imperishable. That means that they're timeless. They're never going to wear out. The wheels of time that grind our bodies down here will have no power over our imperishable, resurrected bodies there. Because they're going to be timeless. They're going to be oblivious to the ravages time. They're going to be impervious to decay. They're going to be imperishable. Fourthly, our glorious bodies are going to be powerful bodies. Look at the very next verse in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, 43. He goes on, it is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. After eons of time has elapsed in glory, We will not have diminished our strength and vitality in any degree whatsoever. Our bodies are going to be powerful in a way that we cannot even comprehend. I love the way C.S. Lewis talks about this in trying to describe what it's going to be like. He says, he writes that if we could see our loved ones now, in their glorified state, we would be tempted to worship them. We'd be tempted to worship. Our glorified bodies will truly be incredible. That's part of the 
joy that is set before us. That's part of the all-conquering hope of heaven that strengthens us in the midst of all of life's valleys. That's what's coming. But not only are we going to have glorified bodies, sons and daughters of God are going to have pure hearts as well. We're going to have pure hearts. This is an incredible promise. To me, this is far outstrips the previous promise of the glorious body. We're going to have pure hearts. 1 Corinthians 15, 44. Paul goes on, it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, the body here on this earth, there's also going to be a spiritual body for the next. So here's how it works. Right now, in this realm, on this physical planet, we are spiritual beings that are housed in physical bodies. We were created in the image of God as spiritual beings that are going to live forever. We have immortality from the point of our creation forward. What we're going to have in the next is spiritual bodies that coincide with our spirit and our spiritual home in heaven. We're not going to be limited like we are now. We are going to have a body that's suited for the next life, a spiritual body, raised spiritual, to fit our spirit that's recreated in the image of Christ and fitted for an eternal spiritual dwelling. And so here's what that means the weaknesses that come along with the physical body are going to be no more. And what I mean by weakness here is not loss of physical strength and illness. I'm talking about the spiritual weakness of our physical body. Our proclivity toward rebellion against God. Our bent toward sin. That's going to end because our physical bodies are going to be redeemed, transformed into glorious bodies so that our hearts are going to be absolutely fully devoted. We're going to shed the battle that we get up every morning and face here. Every day when we wake up as sons or daughters of God, we have Weapons that are taken up against us to attack us, to trip us up, to beat us down, to discourage us, to deceive us. But when this body is resurrected and glorified, it's going to have a pure heart. It's going to be without sin and without defilement. And somebody's got to be happy about that. Wow, that is truly indescribable is what it is. Indescribable. There's going to be perfect devotion, full commitment, and wholehearted love toward God. Praise His name.
glorified bodies, pure hearts. Number three, expanded minds. Expanded minds. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12. Paul writing here to the church at Corinth. Believers in Christ at Corinth. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. Paul writes, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Do you see here the emphasis on an increase in the capacity of our knowledge? Now we know and see dimly, but then we're going to know fully. Now we know in part, then we're going to know fully. There's going to be an expansion of our minds. You see, we are going to enter eternity with our memories intact. We're going to enter eternity remembering the realities of life in vivid detail far greater than we have ever remembered them. We are going to understand things in much more depth than we have ever understood them. We're going to have expanded minds. And there is a clear indication, let me try to show it to you here. It's not the only place that we can see this, but I'm going to point out from this verse in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, and also make a quote from Ephesians that's going to talk about the ever-increasing growth in our knowledge throughout all of eternity. It says in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, that we shall know fully then. And God's word says in Ephesians, Paul wrote that in the coming ages, here's what God's going to do. He is going to show us the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So here's what we've got. We've got this expanded, incredibly expanded mind in glory. We, uh, our minds have been unshackled with all of the limitations that they face now. And the subject matter that we're going to be learning about is the riches of God's grace expressed in Jesus Christ. How many are those riches? How many, church? I would say infinite, unfathomable. And who is the teacher going to be? God is going to show us. So here we have an expanded, incredibly glorified, expanded mind and a subject matter that could go on for eternity and a God of infinity that could explain it in depth and increasing measure throughout all of eternity. Here's what I believe. I believe throughout all of eternity our minds are going to expand with a greater and a greater and a greater vision of the glory of God that's going to go on forever and ever. And at each moment, we are going to be more amazed at the glory and the majesty of God that 
wells up within us a crescendo of praise and worship. And then he's going to show us the next aspect of the riches of his grace found in Jesus Christ. And we're going to overflow some more in worship. And that's going to continue in an ongoing, increasing, unending way. That's my deep conviction. And I am looking forward to that day. It seems like my mind is going the other way here. I'm looking forward to the day when it's unshackled and unleashed and has this continual subject matter from the very throne of grace poured into it. It says in Scripture, one more aspect about our memory here, because here's a struggle. What do we do then with the depths of sorrow and grief that we experience here? If we're going to remember that, how are we going to deal with that in heaven? Well, Scripture says that God's going to wipe every tear from our eye. So would you just speculate with me for a moment? How is God going to wipe every tear from our eye. I'm not telling you that Scripture is is explicit, that this is how He's going to do it, but I believe that we can make a pretty good indication or speculation of how He may do that, and it's related to Romans chapter 8, verse 28, which says that God works in all things for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So just think about what's going to happen with our ever-expanding minds. We are going to, in glory, be able to see there what we cannot see here. We're going to have this growing understanding of how God in His sovereignty worked in the midst of all of life's tragedies and sorrows and griefs, even the greatest that defy description that there was a sovereign, good, good Father like we were singing about this morning that was over that and involved in that and using those very things that the enemy meant for evil to turn them out for good. And we're going to see, I believe, how God did that and it's going to dry our tears in heaven. Amen? Praise the Lord for that. Praise the Lord for that. We can't see that picture here. We don't understand the why here. But never let the why question you over the who because what you do know is the who. God has revealed himself. He has shown you who he is. He has revealed his character to you and the greatest demonstration of love to you in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, and the greatest demonstration of power in his resurrection from the dead and all the promises that go along with that to followers of Christ that are going to experience that same resurrection. So listen, though you might question the wise in this life, 
trump them with the who about the God that you do know. He's not a God that can fit within your parameters, your finite mind, but you can understand enough about him to make you okay with the things that you don't understand. And when you see him correctly, you will be. Number four, fourth truth about how heaven is an all-conquering picture of hope. We're going to have positions of authority. We're going to have positions of authority. We're going to have these glorified bodies, pure hearts, and expanded minds, and we're going to use them in positions of authority as we serve God throughout all of eternity, working His works and following His will in perfect, absolute, immediate devotion. Here's one way we're going to do that. The positions of authority that we have, we're going to judge the world and angels. We're going to judge the world and angels. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2 and 3. Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 2 and 3. Paul writes to the believers there, the Christians there, Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, Are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? He says we're going to judge the world and we're going to judge angels. That seems like such a radical thought that if I said it, it would be heresy. But I didn't say it. I'm just repeating what God and inspired Paul, the apostle, to write. We're going to, as followers of Jesus, we're going to judge the world and angels. I don't mean we're going to be judgmental against them. That's not what I'm talking about. We're going to make judgments. We're going to be emissaries of authority under Christ. Do you feel up to that task? Anybody feel up to that task? Well, listen, When you get to heaven with your expanded mind, you're going to understand the way the justice of God works. You're going to know how to do that because he's going to equip you for it so that you can step into that position of authority with great confidence, not intimidated as a burden, but you can do that as an act of joy as you serve the king and carry out your responsibilities. I just want you, though, before we leave this, to see a picture of authority here. It's an incredible picture. Who are the angels that we're going to judge? It's the fallen angels. It's the demonic spirits that now today are marshaled against us under their liege, Satan. These are the demons that 
attack us and shoot darts at us and attempt to trip us up and want to bring destruction and discouragement and want to lie and deceive. They're the ones that raise their weapons against the church. This is an incredible truth. Do you see the picture of absolute victory here in the fact that we're going to judge them? We have been harassed and lured and enticed and lied to and deceived. And they are unmerciful and they are relentless and they are devious. But on that day, on that day, what's going to happen? Here's what's going to happen. The all-conquering Jesus Christ is going to complete His conquest. And the way He's going to do that is He is going to give us positions of authority with which to judge the demonic spirits. We are going to have authority to put our Foot on the neck of those that have attacked us relentlessly. What a picture of the conquest of Jesus Christ. Let your mind run through that for a minute. Which demons do you want to judge? I mean, the ones that have plagued you, that have been relentless against you, that have tripped you up. I got some on my list that I'm looking forward to putting my foot on their neck, not in hateful judgment, in the dispensing of the justice of the glory of God. For His glory, to display His justice, to highlight the victory of Jesus Christ that could enable me to do that when I was a helpless victim myself. What an incredible picture of the victory of Jesus. Then we're also going to express those positions of authority by reigning with Christ. 2 Timothy 2, 11 and 12. Let me just read this quickly. Paul writes to Timothy, this is a trustworthy saying. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. You know what reigning is? Reigning talks about dominion and leadership and rule. How did it begin in the Garden of Eden? God created this world and he made man and woman in his image, he put them in the garden and he placed them as co-regents over his creation. He gave them rule and dominion. And in the new heavens and the new earth, this heaven, this earth is going to be destroyed. I don't mean it's going to get a makeover. I mean there's going to be a brand new heaven and a brand new earth, the home of righteousness, where we're going to dwell in our glorified state. And there we are going to reign in this far superior new creation. This is an incredible thing about the grace of God. We blew the first one. And he doesn't just restore it and take it back to what it was and put us 
in positions like we had before the fall. He takes us infinitely beyond that in a new creation and lets us reign in this new glorified reality with him. That's a picture of the lavish, multifaceted grace of God that is a part of the joy set before us here so that we can endure the things that we need to endure on our way home. Praise the Lord. Then number five, last point. We are also going to have uncursed relationships. Heaven is going to be a place of uncursed relationships. The Bible says that nothing cursed or unclean is going to enter into heaven. And we know that heaven is a place of relationships, right? We were created in the image of God to be relational beings. That's a part of the key aspect of being created in the image of God. God was a relational being existing throughout all of eternity past as in His triune Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit in perfect communion and fellowship. And He created us in His image with the capacity and for the purpose of communion and fellowship with Him and with each other. All that to say heaven is going to be a place of relationship. And the way He starts it down here as we're getting ready for there is that when he calls us to himself in salvation, he puts us into a family. He puts us into a church, which is his family, into a part of his bride that's relational. Read the New Testament. You cannot live as a New Testament Christian outside of community. It's saturated with relationships. That's why we believe so much here in life groups. That's why we believe that life groups is the second main ministry of this church. What we do here on Sunday morning, one key. What we do in our life groups, the second key. All of that toward making disciples. And we encourage you, if you're not in a life group, find a life group to get plugged into. Contact the office. Contact Pastor Dale, who is over our life group, so we can help you get plugged in to a life group. That's where discipleship happens. That's where you get ready for the relationships of heaven as you live out relationship here. So heaven is going to be a place of relationships. Matthew 8, 11. Matthew 8, 11. Jesus said, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Just two truths I want to spotlight in that verse. Jesus, Lord of heaven, the one who knows all about it, the God of heaven, the creator of heaven, the redeemer of our souls, the one who is returning to get us and take us home, the one who knows every name written in the Lamb's book of life that will be there. He says, I tell you. In other words, this is a guaranteed promise 
from the Lord of creation. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. First of all, heaven is going to be a place of unique people. He identified three names here. Why did he do that? Is it simply because they're famous names? Well, I certainly would agree these are patriarchs of the faith. We are spiritually of the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob if we're followers of Christ. But another point here is that they are individuals. Abraham is still going to be Abraham. Isaac's going to be Isaac. And Jacob is going to be Jacob. And you are going to be you. You're not going to become this ambiguous, nondescript, floating spirit that has no connection to who you were here. You're going to be you, except here's the difference. You're going to be you as you were really meant to be in all of the fullness that God intended for you to be. What God meant for you that is seen as in a mirror dimly here, is going to be seen in full expression there. You're going to become more of you than you have ever been in heaven. You're going to be unique. You're going to be you. People are going to recognize you as you. You're going to recognize them as them. And think about the incredible amount of relationships that you're going to build there. Here's why. How many can you have now? Well, me, about 10 or 15, because that's about all I can remember. But my mind is going to be expanded. Man, my, my list of friends is going to be really long in heaven because I'm going to have the capacity to know them in a deep, perfect way without ever forgetting, without there being any distance without there ever being any competition because all hearts are going to be pure. All minds are going to be expanded. All wills are going to be fully devoted. And so our friendships are going to explode exponentially in heaven as we become who we were truly meant to be in glory. And then, secondly, not just the uniqueness, but that focus on sweet fellowship. Because what Jesus says in Matthew 8.11 is the context of the banquet table. Do you see it? I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. There's going to be a feast. There's going to be a banquet table. Why do we have feasts here? Two reasons, at least, to provide physical nourishment to our bodies and for sweet fellowship. We're not going to need the first in heaven. We're going to have bodies that cannot tire and will not diminish. We get to just eat for the fun of it, but we're going to have sweet fellowship. It's a table, and look who's at the table. Folks, look who's at the table. I mean, ultimately, Jesus is the host. And that 
is infinitely greater than anyone else and that maybe we're going to spend the first 10,000 millennia just getting through the shock of worshiping him. But then we're going to get to hang out with other great heroes of the faith. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, I don't think this is doing violence to the text if we extrapolate that out because I'd like to write a name or two in there for me. Matter of fact, a lot of them. And one that would be at the top of the list would be David, King David. Oh, man, I'm going to sit at the table with King David. I mean, this is the kid, the ruddy, red-haired kid that stood there, his hands sunk in the hair of Goliath's severed head and the body of the ten-foot vanquished foe at his feet now whittled down from ten feet to about nine feet because he was holding a foot of it in his hand. And that's a little morbid, but that's cool. David is the leader of leaders in my mind in the Old Testament. He's the passionate worshiper of history, the writer of the Psalms. He's the fearless warrior. He's the guy that didn't care what anybody else thought, but disrobed himself in front of his people to dance before the ark of the Lord in worship. That's a leader. That's a leader. I'm going to sit at the table with him. You know what I hope? I hope the bloodstains of Goliath are still on his hands when I ask him for some brisket across the table, right? (laughs) Oh, folks, the point is the relationships of heaven are going to be sweet. You're going to be known. You're going to know your loved ones. I know that Scripture says there's not going to be any marrying or giving in marriage in heaven. But so often, people make conclusions based upon that that are not said in Scripture. Why aren't we going to be married? We're going to be married to Jesus. We're his bride. He's the perfect groom. He's the number one relationship. But the other relationships that we're going to have, we're going to be known and we're going to know who we knew here and those that we loved here. We're going to love there in a far greater measure than we ever loved here because we're going to have expanded minds and pure hearts with which to love them. So we're not going to miss out on any relationship in heaven. They're going to be expanded. They're going to be expanded. Jesus looked to him. The quintessential example of how to endure suffering who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame and set down at the right hand of the throne of God. You want a vision to take you through the difficulties of life. 
get a glimpse, turn your focus on the revealed truth of the all-conquering hope of heaven, and it will provide that for you. And keep your eyes fixed there, looking not to what is seen, but to what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Would you please stand? Let's pray as the worship team comes. Father, God of all glory, Jesus, Lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. Jesus exalted to the highest place the name that is above every name. The one before whom all in heaven and on earth and under the earth will bow and confess to be Lord. We confess you to be Lord right here now today in worship and in adoration. Thank you. Thank you for who you are Thank you for what you did, becoming God in the flesh, for the atonement that you provided and the example that you set in how to endure life's greatest trials by fixing our eyes on the joy set before us. Help us to do that in the name of Jesus. For your glory, I pray, amen.